All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. And today we're actually going to back off a little bit. And we're going to talk about what Brian and I have cooking in our shops. I think both of us have been up to quite a bit here lately. Uh, somehow we made it through all of the holidays. <laughs> and uh, the the headaches and frustration and stress that those can bring sometimes, especially when you're a maker trying to wrap up things for year end. But uh Brian, why don't we start off and talk about a couple of the things or maybe just one of the things you got cooking in your shop and we can kind of go back and forth. Yeah. So uh, right now I am building a metal steel table base. Uh, It's pretty big. It's about five foot uh, long. Uh, I'd say 16 inches deep and 38 inches tall. So it is it is pretty big uh, uh, deal. It's one of those times where I wish I had a shop assistant to help me move this thing around because as I'm as I'm welding, I basically I constructed it by welding up a little metal frame uh, out of some uh, um, angle iron and then uh, cladded it with uh, some steel steel cladding. So yeah, so it's just a lot of workout to to move this thing around. And, um, uh, yeah, so definitely one of those things I wish I had a uh, helper to, uh, to help me with. And then and I'm trying some new patina processes on it. And one thing that I'm struggling with and having a little bit of a challenge with is I can do my test piece on a little 12 inch square piece of metal. And it's like, all right, that works pretty cool. But then when you go to scale it up on this five foot long piece, well, by the time I get from foot one to foot five, foot one has overreacted or has dried or whatever bad thing has happened over there. So foot five looks awesome. Foot one looks terrible because it got away from me and I wasn't able to control it as much as I had had hoped. So uh, it's uh, back out of the uh, uh, finishing room and uh, back in the shop so I can sand it back to try again with some new <laughs> techniques on how There's I'm going to control it. Nothing better to work on your technique than a total redo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's just one of those things. The thing is so, so big, you just have no idea what's going to happen until how you do it. So I kind of have a game plan in my, my head and uh, on my little 12 inch test pieces, I, I started the reaction and then kind of let it sit and just sat there and watched it for five or 10 minutes to see how fast it was reacting and kind of like dialing back the strength of my mix of my chemicals and things. So a little diluted version uh, to slow it down so that way I can stay on top of it. So is this going to be like a, a dining table or some type of an accent table or what what's the purpose of the table itself? Uh, it's yeah, it's just going to be kind of like a, a hangout table. I've done one uh, for a client uh, before and this is actually for the the same client, just another another uh, piece for their house. And it's just like a, a entertainment thing when they have guests over and parties over, it's high enough that you can just kind of lean on it and hang out with your drink or martini or wine or whatever, whatever you want to do with it. So, so yeah. Very cool. Uh, so you talked about the base of it being steel. Is the top of it going to be steel as well? Or are you going to do something different? There? Uh, the top is going to be wind gay. Okay. The, well, the top is already made. Uh, I built the top first. The top is on site. So I don't know how I'm going to photograph that because I decided, well, I'll do a YouTube video of this. So it might just be just the base. And then uh, depending on the client's schedule, if I can get out there in a reasonable time to photograph and all that and 
Also, I don't want to overstay my welcome if I like, hey, can I set up a whole bunch of lights to try to get a good picture of this or not, you know? <laughs> so, well, you you may have to uh, rely on AI to make that thing complete. Yeah, to, to put a top on or or something, or at least Photoshop the background when I install it and put it everything together. I could take a step back and take a picture of it. But so, is uh, that is that going to be a is it going to live in Colorado or is it out of state? Uh, yeah, it's here in uh, yeah, it's uh, cross town for me. Okay, now they've that... they've uh, this is maybe the fifth piece of furniture I built for them, so they've been long term clients. So I'm hoping they'll just be like, yeah, cool, whatever you want to do. Oh wow. That's that's awfully cool to have clients that trust you at that level. So the tables there, well, I, one thing I would say, working with steel as I have over the years, you know, you weld things on, they just get heavier and heavier and bulkier and bulkier. I feel like uh, my DNA must be part Egyptian because I've always figured out some weird block and tackle <laughs> to yeah. roll pieces <laughs> across the garage as they get heavier and heavier. You you learn to use leverage <laughs> and and other other methods to get things to move but yeah having another set of hands is always a pretty yeah so the thing. the cool thing about this house is it's going in the basement but this house has a little elevator in it and uh doing the weight calculation uh, uh i can put the base in the elevator close the door hit and then go downstairs and call the elevator and i'm still within the weight calculation if it just rides by itself <laughs> that uh, well yeah I, what's the uh what's the alternative there if you built a piece like that that was too heavy for the elevator do you bring in movers uh, to move them down the stairs or do you do something else to uh the only time um that has happened was this big platform bed and uh i when I originally talked to the client, it was going to go up in their upstairs bedroom, but then they decided to make the downstairs bedroom, the guest bedroom. And uh, I, so I was prepared with some little dollies, uh, those furniture moving dollies, just to set it on there and then just roll it down the hall. Right. And then I'll just a couple of steps to get it in the house and whatnot. Uh, but then when I, I got there, she's all like, yeah, we decided to put it downstairs. And I was like, I am not prepared for myself to, to me and my, my daughter came with me to help me lift it. But she was like all of like 15 at the time and little wiry kid. Right. So, so, uh, it was quite the struggle just getting it out of the truck and in the house. And I was like, Oh no, I don't, I don't, I'm going to have to come back with some friends or something to make this happen. And she's, her housekeeper was there and her housekeeper was this like muscly woman, like like a bodybuilder looking chick and she's like, Oh, I can help you. And so uh, she basically carried it down, down the stairs. Like <laughs> she was like, I was like holding one end of it, but like, I could tell like she was lifting most of the weight. And so she took it down there. So she saved me on that, on that deal. The housekeeper. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. I, I feel, I feel like my days of moving very heavy things downstairs are over. I would, I would yeah. much rather, offer some some uh enterprising young man some money uh that uh that wants to pad his bank account a little bit I'm just, yeah uh, the the older i get the more and more uh i start thinking about hiring somebody like when i first started i was like there's no way i'm ever gonna hire anybody i like working by myself make my own hours but like if i want to keep building big projects and things uh it's it's becoming more and more uh, necessity that I at some point should take on some type of apprentice or 
part-time worker or helper or something. Yeah. I think we all hit that point at some point in our lives where it's like, well, either I've got to shrink what I'm doing down to a size that uh, my grandmother could bench press <laughs> or I've got to get another set of hands here. So yeah, for sure. Well, interestingly enough, uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit of what I've been working on. There was a, uh, there was a big company out of California that supplied acoustic guitar uh, builders, their tooling and some of the things that it takes to build acoustic guitars. And uh, they went out of business here at the end of 2023 and left just an absolutely gaping hole uh, out there in the luthier world. So I've spent the last, I knew they were going out of business uh, at some point in the fall and was trying to sort out whether or not I could position myself to fill that hole. And so I spent pretty much the tail end of November, the entirety of December and January designing and starting to prototype side bending forms. Uh, I guess you'd call it a side bending heater doing the electronics for temperature controls for heated blankets and then uh, starting to order actual units uh, from overseas and, and things of that nature to see if I could assemble all the pieces and parts that I needed to assemble. Unfortunately, I've learned that you really can't buy any electronics that are made in the United States. That's one thing my uh, my guitar company takes huge pride in is that we're all made in the U.S. I don't uh, I don't have fabrication done overseas or anything like that. And uh, I've been trying to source electronic components that I can use in some of these designs and they don't exist here. Everything's made in either China or Taiwan. I think some of the higher end electronics are maybe Japanese made, but they don't mess with with things of this nature. So dealing with some of our overseas friends at three in the morning, <laughs> trying to uh, get answers and work through uh, problems and understand their screen printing capabilities, their laser cutting capabilities and things like that. And uh, good news is I've come out the other side of that and the prototypes are all working, which is fantastic. Uh, so now it's a matter of, of tooling up for the production on those. And I've actually enlisted the help of some of my YouTube friends to do some production. Some of the some of the guys I know out there who have the big five by ten CNC machines that can cut up sheets of MDF and and uh, Baltic birch plywood in nothing flat. <laughs> so uh, we're we're gearing up in skyscraper to uh, not necessarily change our focus, but to add a completely new department to the company, which is going to be pretty cool. All right, so. Is this still kind of top secret stuff, or do you want to share a little bit about what uh, what these parts are? I can I can absolutely share. They're going to be so. Uh, we've got a big target, which I think you know, just in general, as things go, having deadlines and targets, I think are are ways to really put your nose to the grindstone, right? If you say I'm going to have it done by this date, generally we get things done by the date we have to get them done. That's what deadlines are for. And we have a guitar show here in late March in Colorado. And so I'm going to be debuting all these new products at that guitar show. So um, it's attended heavily by acoustic guitar builders and lightly by electric guitar builders is what I would say. There's probably three to one acoustic builders to electric builders. So just makes a whole lot of sense to bring that stuff to that venue and show it off. But uh yeah, I can I can absolutely talk about that stuff. Yeah. 
So what what do you think is going to be like the the newest number one seller out of that line? Yeah, I've I've spent an awful lot of time on my side bending machine, and anyone who builds guitars, acoustic guitars, uh, has to bend some very thin sides, and uh, the the way you do that is is you can either steam them or bend them over a heat pipe with a torch, uh, or it's my wife. My wife runs all of our logistics for skyscraper guitars. I bet she's coming down here to uh, to get some things going out the door. Um, anybody who who builds acoustic guitars has to bend the sides, and you can you can bend them over a pipe with a torch in it, or you can use some more modern techniques. And one of those techniques is to use a heat blanket uh, that can get up to about really you bend sides at maybe three hundred and fifty degrees somewhere in there. And it depends on the species of wood and that sort of thing, but um, there's a technique where you make a sandwich out of some spring steel, the side that you want to bend in a heating blanket, and then you put it under pressure and bend it over a mold. And, uh, that's exactly what we're doing. We're building a mechanism for all that stuff to happen, which is not something I've, I've invented from scratch. The, those types of benders have been out, uh, I can't remember his first name is the last name is Fox. The Fox bender is a very common thing that you see in guitar builders workshops and this is this is a riff or a further iteration on the fox bender that has a a cantilevered press arm and and some other uh really nice features like that hey so is this uh was this that heating element one of the things that you're having a hard time sourcing from overseas or here locally well yeah so um i'll i'll hold up kind of a finished piece right now. So the finished piece is this. There's a, a temperature controller here. So it works basically like a thermostat. You plug a thermal couple in here and then this will tell you what temperature you're at and then you can set a target temperature. And then uh, over here is kind of the heater side. So this is where the heating blanket plugs in and then you can switch that circuit on and off. And when this demands, um, when this demands heat, more heat, uh, it pulls in a relay and energizes the heating blanket. What's really nice, like a lot of people who are into home brewing and things use a very similar type of a setup to regulate the temperature of their keg or whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, you also see it in powder coating ovens and things of that nature. And um, it actually allows you to control the duty cycle so that you don't burn out elements. And it allows you to control the temperature very accurately within about two degrees. So plus or minus a degree or two, which is really, really nice if you're doing something precise. And then for those who might be interested, uh, the guts of this thing are pretty simple. So it's uh, a solid state relay along with, uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, not the cooling fins, but something along those lines. Uh, yeah. And then this is the the PID controller. And those things together, you know, you can find all the bits and pieces on Amazon or wherever you want to find them, but it's, it's assembling them in a way that allows it to work with the thing you're doing. And, uh, you know, the, probably the most difficult piece of this entire thing to find is the actual case that you build it in <laughs> of all things. Uh, there's a bunch of, uh, I think they call them project boxes out there. But finding one that fits the components in nice and compact and has enough room for all the cutouts in it was an absolute trick. And uh, finally found a company that would make one that that was kind of to my specs. 
which worked out really well. Um, so yeah, th those are some of the challenges. And interestingly enough, like I said, you can get on Amazon and buy the components, but um, if you go out and really do your homework again on the overseas market um, and become the importer, you can bring the prices down by a substantial amount as far as what they cost me to build them because I'm buying a hundred at a time, you know, enough components to buy a hundred at a time. And I can, I can put these out into the market for just slightly more than it would cost somebody to buy all the components and do it on their own. So, you know, when you, when you add it up to me, there's gotta be a, a value uh, proposition that works out when you're making a product, right? If, if somebody says, well, you know, you're charging $200 for this and I can buy all the components for 35 bucks. Why would I pay you to assemble it? Right. Versus well, I, go ahead. I would pay you to assemble it because I don't necessarily have the knowledge to, to assemble it. Uh, I mean, I, as a maker, I could probably figure it out, but there are a lot of people that just want to build the guitar. Yeah. And so they don't want to, they want to try to go through all the rigor of figuring that out. And then also there's, a, a little bit of a liability thing for them if they got the wrong heating element or wrong cooling yeah. thing or whatever, and that all of a sudden their unit is on fire. Yeah. And there's, there's huge value in having a warranty, right? Somebody right. Who, who will replace components if something fries out, whatever else. And, and I realize that too. Um, but I guess where I'm trying to go is uh, there's, I think if you try and pick up all the components to build one of these, um, uh, all the electronic components to build one of these, you're probably, you're probably dropping a hundred dollar bill on, on just that. You know, if you were to hop on Amazon, buy all the bits and pieces, uh, and then you put a case in there and then all the wiring and, and, um, um, crimp connectors and things of that nature. You're probably a hundred and a quarter, maybe uh, sometime by the time you yeah. get it done. And I think our target price point is right around $150 for that thing to go out the door, which uh, I think, I think is a pretty darn good value for everybody that may want one, but then, you know, kind of backing it up and looking at, well, yeah, buying components, like I'm buying them in bulk really does drive that price down. So there's there's enough margin in there to make it worth our time. So there's a the, the thing that I would say when you're designing something like an electrical circuit, understanding what those parameters are, I think is pretty important. The last thing you want to do is put something out there that isn't going to sell because there's a there's an insane amount of hours in figuring out this simple little thing and how to make it not just work. The 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 proof of concept went really fast. That was maybe an evening. I did it with my dad uh, just over a year ago, actually, in his basement. That was a piece of cake. It was figuring out how to get this thing manufactured with tight tolerances so that when you when you hit the on and off button, it's not moving around. It doesn't feel weak. When you pull the cord out of it, it doesn't pull the whole thing apart. <laughs> you know, yeah. those those types of things that, that you got to, you have to stress test them. And that's why... Uh, if you look at this one, um, I've got, uh, you can't, here we go. There it is. The The side of this thing is melted. <laughs> <laughs> the The front of this thing uh, is super glued back together because of uh, some laser cutting things. There, there were a lot of things in the prototype, the first prototype, not the, not the proof of concept, but the actual first, here's how we're going to make this prototype. This thing went together and came apart probably 50 or 60 times before, every screw was in the right place 
every wire was the right length and uh, there's no nothing getting crimped or pinched or or anything like that because uh, I know for a fact these things are going to go into a box and they're going to bounce down the highway in the back of a semi and then the last 20 feet of the delivery is probably going to include some airmail in it <laughs> landing <laughs> right. on somebody's stair yeah so so trying to make this thing in a fashion that's going to be rigid enough just to hold up through shipping uh, is is a feat in and of itself. I know people might laugh at that a little bit, but it's truly uh, one of the biggest considerations you make when you're putting something like that together. So that's that's one component. Um, and then the other uh, is, is the actual bending forms and experimenting with there. It's going to be a flat pack situation, right? So there's going to be five pieces of lumber that go into a box flat packed with some fasteners and then somebody has to assemble it so getting it to a point where someone can assemble it accurately without having any machine shop tools because <laughs> uh, you're you're bending guitar sides that are um, 80 thousandths thick so how how thick is 80 thousandths just over a 16th of an inch so a 16th of an inch is 62 and a half thousandths and so uh, just over 16th of an inch thick, and then you have to sand them so that they're perfectly flat, right? So if you have a ripple in that side, and I'm talking, you know, along the width, the six inch width or the five inch width of it, you have to sand that out. Well, you've only, you're, you're starting with just over a 16th of an inch. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room yeah. before you start sanding through the entire thing. So again, you have to be able to assemble this thing with, with precision and accuracy so that you don't have, you know, you're probably wanting them to get within a 64th or less of where it needs to be. So there's uh, a lot that goes into how, how that happens. So the curved shape, how are you going? Is it, it's going to be flat and then you're, they have to bend that to fit a form to yeah, build the um, form on. Yeah. I got to be careful here because I've got, I've got a logo on one of my prototypes that I can't share yet. Um, okay. Well then, uh, but, but I'll cover it up. It'll be okay. Okay. Um, so there we go. So there's, uh, there's the bending form. So it's six inches wide and then it gets covered up with some spring steel and then the piece you're bending and then, uh, the heating blanket on top of that. And then there's a press that comes down and my fingers like right over the waist there, there's a press that comes down in the waist. And then there's two two pieces that press down the sides as you bend them. So those three pieces of MDF there have to be have to be very accurate in term they have to be very planar to one another which you cut them on the CNC and they're all identical uh you know within a very very small tolerance maybe 5 thousandths of each other but then assembling the three of them together with wood screws and trying to make that accurate is a, is a little bit of a trick to make it work. And, and we wound up doing um, a rabbited and notched piece that connects the three pieces so that it positively locks into the centerpiece. And then the two outer pieces can square off that and be parallel to the other face. And then you can align them against a fence. So just any kind of any piece of straight lumber or you know whatever you want, a piece of steel doesn't matter. And and once you do that, everything sort of snaps together square. So anyway, it was that was a fun journey <laughs> trying yeah. to make all of that happen. I think uh, what you saw in the photo there was probably the 
fifth or sixth iteration of that and the the prior iterations i couldn't get square i couldn't get them to line up without major um without it taking call it 15 to 20 minutes to get them to line up perfectly so um Anyway, that's been really fun to iterate on. Yeah, you just want them to be able to take it out of the box and like snap them into into place. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah, it's amazing of how many products out on the market don't have that amount of thought put into the usability from the the end end user. Uh, in a past podcast, I mentioned I bought a bunch of metalworking Harbor Freight tools, and a lot of people make fun of Harbor Freight for falling apart, but most of my Harbor Freight tools haven't really fallen apart. They're just not very accurate or user-friendly yeah. because no one put that extra thought into the development of the tool. The tool itself is a motor bolted onto a metal fixture of some kind over almost unanimous uh, across all of Harbor Freight stuff. It's like some kind of casting with some kind of cheap motor bolted to it but the casting is never very accurate. There's not yeah. very well thought out. And that's one of my beefs. You know, people pick on Harbor Freight tools a little bit and and rightfully so in a lot of instances, but I would challenge you to go into Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards or pick your box store and pick up some of their tools. They have the same exact problems. They just have a different logo on them. Um, now, when you get into your professional grade tools, you don't see as many problems. The one, the one that I'll point out is I bought a biscuit joiner at one point in my life and from Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, one of the box stores. And I got it home and just right out of the box. Couldn't, couldn't, not that it wasn't square. I'm okay with squaring up tools, right? Like, like I said, right. they, they rattle down the back of the, in the back of a semi down the highway for hours on end and then get tossed around and up on shelves and everything else. So I get that something may not be perfectly square out of the box, but I could not get it to the fence and the blade to be parallel. I couldn't get it there from here. (laughs) And and that's a a non-starter for me. So, you know, the first one went back and and I picked up the second one. The second one had the same issue. So I took it back and the third one had the same issue and I gave up and said, okay, we've got to move on. And it wasn't... it wasn't a bad tool manufacturer. I can't remember which one it was, but it wasn't like a terrible name or anything like that, but uh, wound up moving on to, uh, I don't know if it was a Makita or something else that that was a little bit higher end, prosumer, I would call it. Um, and finally wound up with a unit that would cut biscuits that were parallel. Because <laughs> yeah. you know how that goes, right? Like they they form an X if you're if you're you know pushing it one way and then the other, you know, if you don't have it parallel, they form an X and and not a a plane, and you can't have that. So right, yeah. I mean that even happens in like the the pro line. Like uh, my Laguna bandsaw, um, when I uh, assembled it and I went to open the door to install the blade, the door hit the bolt that bolted the base. The the band saw to the base. And so I had to remove that bolt just to have the door swing open and close. Now to Laguna's credit, uh, in an updated version of the same tool, the 1412 bandsaw, now they have um a notch on the door so it clears the bolt. So they've they've addressed it and fixed it. Not not every manufacturer does that, but I, I can't remember exactly what I did, but if we're telling war stories like that, I've got a, I think it's a 19 inch Rikon bandsaw that I bought, costing an awful lot of money. And the first day that I had it in my shop, I had my angle grinder out grinding, 
<laughs> grinding things to give them clearance to make the tool work like I needed it to work. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the first time somebody sees you do that, they freak out. You know, you're cutting on a $2,000 saw <laughs> and it's not even a day over old yet. And uh, my answer is always, well, the tool is a starting spot and you have to form that tool to what your needs are. And if that means you break out your angle grinder or your drill or whatever it is, I mean, there's a lot of people who have uh, custom hold downs and things of that nature on saws like that or on, on tools like that, maybe not on saws like that, but yeah, go ahead. It's your tool. You own it now, right? There's nothing sacred there. If it's not working exactly like you need it to work, do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> there's all kinds of tools in my shop that I've modified or something broken. So I've, my, my fix wasn't to order a new part. It was just to make the part and glue it on there, or screw it on there or whatever. Yeah, for yeah. sure. The old farmer mentality, it'll take you a long way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, let's see, let's, let's flip, flip back to you a little bit. You said you have the, the table going on right now. Is there anything else uh, either kind of started over in the corner in the, in the wings waiting to happen once the table comes out? Yeah. Or? Let me share my, uh, my screen here. Um, this is next up in line here after the the base. Oh wow! So that's my my new bed, uh, new bed design, and it was kind of a a spinoff of the door that I built a couple years ago now, a year ago now, mm -hmm. uh, for the Wood Whisperer Guild. This won't be a Wood Whisperer Guild project. Uh, the timeline to get it done is is not to wait for a cameraman on this particular project. Um, maybe in the future, I don't know, but um, um, yeah, so that's the next next build. So it's got a little bit of a uh, combination of green and green and mission style kind of mashed, mashed together there. Um, proportion wise, I'm pretty happy with it. The headboard there, I might make it a little bit shorter. It feels a little tall. Um, it might just be the angle of my rendering, but uh, I'll probably play with that over the next week or so while I finish up the table base. So but, uh, I, I've got to ask, what's the material that you're going to have? Um, I'll call it in the the openings there at the top of the headboard and the top of the footboard. Yeah. So for those that are listening to the uh, the podcast, uh, we'll I'll put some pictures of this, or you can jump over to our YouTube channel. But uh, to describe this thing, um, it uh, is the frame of the bed is made from cherry. And then it has uh, upper divider lights on the head and footboard and then some lower panels. And the lower panels are walnut and the upper divider lights will be uh, like a curly maple or some kind of figured maple. And uh, the reason why I went with kind of a figured maple look is because uh, if you look at like a green and green um, door or a green and green type lights, there's a lot of decorative stained glass work that kind of really accents and, and makes their work pop. So I didn't want to get into stained glass in a, in a bed. So that's kind of my, my play on the design of to have a really highly figured wood in replace of the glass. That is going to be absolutely gorgeous, Brian. And I don't, I'm not just saying that that is uh, I, the, the pieces that are catching my eye as a designer, there, there's two, two things that stick out on the arch that you have that little detail where you're putting an offset in it. Uh, I don't know if you pick that up from somewhere else or if that's your detail, but then you carry it around to the sideboard and then you carry it around to the headboard and then the light dividers on the headboard have a similar offset in them. I think that motif 
going both horizontal and vertical on the bed are those are just fantastic little elements brian yeah that element is my rendition and it's like seven or eight renditions down the line over the years of what a green and green cloud lift would be so green Mm -hmm. and green cloud lifts are a little bit more straight with two little uh crooks in them and this is more of a swoop with a big crook in it again i don't know if crook's the right word but it my I, I, when I was showing it to my wife, I tore like that. I feel like it's a more modern uh, rendition of a cloud lift. Yeah, I, I agree. The other thing that I see is um, on the edges of the legs, both at the headboard and the footboard, is almost a trestle style detail. It looks like there's a little bit of an of an inset where where you get the top and the bottom curve maybe those are maybe those are parallel and flush and i'm just seeing a line there but uh it's an interesting detail it's just a little shadow line it looks like uh are you talking about just this this swoosh right right here this curve Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that does have a little bit of a a curve out uh um I kind of uh, was playing around with that detail. Daryl Peart at the, if you, if those of you are not uh, familiar with Daryl Peart, Daryl Peart is uh, very hard into the green and green. He is probably like the foremost expert on green and green that's still alive these days. And he's a furniture maker that designed a lot of furniture in the green and green style. And so he has a very hard curve and, uh, Hard curves aren't really like my style. I like something that kind of swoops in and swoops out, eases in. And so this was kind of my rendition on the, on his curve. So his comes very sharp down and then curves in. Mm-hmm. This kind of is a swoop. Well, that's going to be an absolutely stunning piece. I can I can tell it already. And I think I think your your gut feeling that the headboard might be a little tall. Uh, I I might agree with that. And I I know this isn't a a big critique session that that's not yeah, the point no. of our of our talk but um i i agree with you there the the proportions of that headboard which again it probably depends on what's the room that it's going in and and some of those other things and you know just thinking out loud uh i know my wife for one loves to put about 30 pillows on a bed so by the time you stack up enough fluffy pillows there that might be the right height <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um, yeah yes this is true my wife has a bazillion pillows as well so uh pillow heavy not pillow heavy but i think this um this braille is going to move down and then i'm going to move like this will move down maybe an inch and then this will move down two inches because i think that these lights are just too tall yeah uh, almost out of proportion I think your I think your gut's good there. And and what I would say is there's a there's a balance to to those dividers in the light. And it looks like the top section and the bottom section. So the narrow section and the wide section are the same, same dimension, uh, same height. And having one of those um take take precedent might might help that and just just a little bit like that two inches would be enough. Yeah. I, I if it were me and and again this isn't me designing it for brian that's <laughs> not my point but i would pick one and, and it goes back to um you know one of the design rules right one is a monolith two is a pair uh and three is hierarchy and so you start asking yourself you know is this a situation where i need one thing to dominate the other and and that sort of thing but it even even as it is uh, uh, with no modifications 
I, I think this would be an absolute stunner. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about uh, getting it going. So I'm hoping I can get this uh, table base finished up this weekend so I can start on this guy on Monday. Isn't isn't that the craziest thing in the world when you have projects lined up and you're finishing a project that you're really excited about, but you're so much more excited about the one that's <laughs> yeah that still happens. sitting in board form on the shelf. Yeah, that happens all the all the time. Even if I'm just in the design stage of, you know, I I try to always have like a project that's on its way out of the shop, a project that's on its way into the shop, and then a new client that I'm designing something for. And oftentimes, the new client that I'm designing something for is the shiny new thing that I just want to like. All right, screw these other two things. I'm I'm ready to build this new shiny thing. But I think that's yeah. just human nature. I've got, my goodness, um, interestingly enough, uh, I chatted with a gentleman who's, who's pretty well respected in the acoustic guitar building arena, is how I would say it. Uh, he lives here in Colorado and visited him over at his house and kind of walked through some of the things that I'm doing on the acoustic guitar tooling side of things. And he was, he was a wealth of information first off, but then he's, oh yeah, you know, I've had people calling me about this and I've had people calling me about that. He stacked up about 10 projects on my list in the matter of about 15 minutes. And I'm like, you realize it's, it's my, my timeline is generally a year from the time I, I get the idea, you know, and sketch it for the first time till the time I'm, I'm uh, pooping out the first units. And, uh, you know, this is, this represents probably three years worth of work, but we're trying to fill this, fill this void that was left by the company that closed. So I'm trying to fast track some of this process. So I've been doing doing weekends where I'm actually uh, I've got two or three prototypes cooking at a time. You know, one's on the computer where I'm working out the cam, the other's on the CNC, and the other is uh, I'm working on the assembly. And then you know, as you go through and kind of do your critique of of the first article there. Okay, I need to make another one, but I need to make these six changes. And by the way, that affects everything else I'm working on. So I need to halt those things for a minute. But uh but it's it's funny how that works. I mean, I'm I'm in a I'm in a mode right now and I'm I'm sure you probably get here all the time where I'm actually ordering material this week for something I know I won't work on for two months. But I need to get that material stacked up and and measured so that the models are accurate. Cause again, these are going to be production items. And so we get down to, you know, if you're going to have something fit together, it's got to be within just a few thousandths to make it snap together and be square and all those kind of things. So, you know, uh, having the material on hand is, is a must. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't use nominal dimensions in manufacturing models, which is kind of a, a different mindset that I don't know if everybody completely understands. Yeah. Well, the lawsuits of, of the big box stores and lumber yards over two by fours uh, proves that most people don't understand what a nominal dimension is. But uh, yeah. yeah, keeping uh, keeping materials on hand is is a kind of a big big thing and keeping everything moving. Uh, this wood for this bed is sitting on top of the table saw right now while I grinding away at this, uh, uh, removing my first attempt of patina on the, on the table base. And it just kills me that it's just sitting there. And of course, grinding all that dust falls all over the place, a huge mess, but 
Yeah, I have material that uh, for projects, just passion projects that I've like, oh, you know what, that would be perfect for this idea I have. And so I have this live edge slab that I've had for maybe three years now, and I've just never had time to uh, do it. And then this thing right here, uh, this live edge uh, stump, I guess, part of a stump tree that I, I bought that for a project that I had in my mind, but uh, the client projects come first. So I, I got stuff stacked all over the place. We did a show where we talked a little bit about that at one time. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, and, you know, every time you mention something like that, Brian, I look over into my my wood stash in the corner over here. I've got 20 years worth of guitars, uh, worth of lumber for guitar building next to me here uh, at my desk. And uh, I often think through, you know, I know what's in each and every box and stack and, you know, they're all saran wrap together so that they compress and don't warp and everything like that and and i know what and i know exactly what's in each one of them and uh some of the some of the timber that i've bought i had sliced into guitar sets you know so whatever for a for a back it might be uh about an eighth of an inch thick is about where i start and then sides like i said we're about 80 thousandths but there there's every tree that I buy or every piece of lumber that I buy that I have resawn, you know, there might be 10 sets in there. And then, so I know I'll make one of those guitars and then that, that piece of wood will go off to the side for a year or two while I make other guitars out of other trees. <laughs> and then I'll come back to it. And I've got, you know, seven or eight more guitars to build out of that one, one log. So kind of, kind of fun to think of, of what that might look like. And I'm, you know, with, with this venture into the acoustic guitar side of things, I'm getting closer and closer to being able to, to be able to spit some of those guitars out in a production fashion, which will be super exciting. Yeah. So uh, is this, I can't remember uh, exactly, but I remember you were doing a bending form with uh, a um, vacuum bag, trying to bend yeah. a guitar. Is this new tool heating tool to replace that? No, function or it, is that still something that you'd have to do this is step one um in side bending so you you bend the sides and as you can well imagine there's some spring back that happens mm -hmm. after you you know heat bend aside unless unless you can apply tremendous pressure which uh you know takes steel forms and a big hydraulic press and all those kind of things that's how the big boys do it um but but if you bend sides in this way they will all spring back. I don't, I don't care who you talk to. Everybody, everybody has the same issue. And so you wind up doing one of two things. You put those sides into what's called an outside form. So it's it, instead of like what I showed was the inside, like a plug, uh, the outside form has the outside and then a rib around it. And then you use spreaders and you spread your guitar sides in there. And then you, brace them and do all that kind of stuff. Or you you uh, laminate two pieces together in a vacuum bag like you're like you mentioned, Brian. And then you epoxy those two pieces together and it becomes a composite lamination and those don't move. And so th there's pluses and minuses to to both sides of that. The plus is that it's incredibly stiff when you laminate the two together with epoxy. The downside of it is you actually get a little bit thicker side and you could say it's a downside. It's also an upside depending on how you're designing the acoustics of the instrument. 
if you're wanting the sides to be a little more alive, then it's probably uh, a negative. But if you want your sides to be more rigid uh, so that all of the energy comes out of the top, then then it's a positive. So, but yes, uh, one of the other pieces to this puzzle is that plug I showed has three ribs to it, right? And if you were to use that in a vacuum press, the vacuum would suck it in between those ribs and you would wind up with a, with a cross section that looked like a W. So I've actually kind of one of our differentiators is I've, I've actually made uh, ribs that will fill in those gaps. So you can use this form for the bending, but then you can also use it for vacuum forming as well. The vacuum forming piece uh, I've struggled with, I've struggled with the assembly of it because there's so many pieces. There's uh, 15 or 16, I think there's 16 pieces that have to come together to form that. Um, all, at, all at once inside the bag? All Well, all at once to make the form itself. Oh, okay. So when somebody's, when someone is assembling that form at their house, right? Like they're not going to have a granite surface table to... <laughs> <laughs> to lay this thing on with a with an angle block that makes it perfectly 90 degrees and all those things. In in my shop, I can assemble it perfect within a couple thousandths of an inch, you know, so you just take your 80 grit sandpaper over the top of it and it would be perfectly flat. But most people don't have the ability. Uh, and it also took me, what did I have to have? Um, one, two, three, four, five, six. I had to have six blocks cut to specific dimensions to be able to clamp the thing and put pressure evenly across. There's seven ribs that go across to make six inches uh, with, with three quarter inch material. I think that's right. Seven or is it eight? Shoot, it's probably eight. Um, no, it's an odd number. It's seven. Uh, so there's seven ribs that go across there to make a six inch piece. I think I'm right. No, I'm not. It's eight. Dang it. Um, but, but that said, aligning eight pieces of lumber, like you've tried to clamp multiple layers of things together, getting them accurate within a couple thousandths of an inch is almost impossible. Very, very difficult. So, um, I've got some ideas for alignment pins that I think are going to make that work. And once I get that sorted out, then our vacuum form pieces will be available. So, um, it's a thing where you'll buy the three rib piece first. And then if you want to use it for a vacuum form, it'll be an add on. So I'll send you those pieces either in the same box or in a separate order. So you can do them at a later date. You don't have to make that decision on day one, but, uh, but yeah, that's been as far as figuring out the manufacturing of, of those things. Uh, number one, they don't lay out very well right now on a piece of plywood or a piece of MDF. It, it, there's not much yield out of a large piece of lumber. So they're very inefficient. So I'm trying to figure out if I can break it into multiple pieces to make it easier to lay out and uh, nest on a big board, or if I need to stick with what I've got, but then find some other pieces that we're making that would fill in some of those blank areas and make it a little more economical. Yeah. There's a lot, uh, a lot of things to think about and vacuum forming. And then once you get your form built, uh, the failure rate is pretty high sometimes on <laughs> on things. I, I have uh, this idea for a sculpture that I want to do, and it would be like this big bent lamination thing. And it, it I have a, a nine foot long bag, and it's going to take up almost the whole bag. 
and my my tests have have not have not yielded well have not my test has made firewood and uh with epoxy you can't that's not good firewood no it's not but you know one of the things that i will point out if you're brave enough and you mess something up that's glued together with epoxy you can get it back apart so if uh again you know if you're using the piece of wood out of the magical tree and uh you need to get it back you can absolutely get it back if it's glued crooked but it's uh it's not fun <laughs> you you have to really want it and it's going to make you work for it but you can get them back apart yeah. with a heat gun and and uh some artist palette knives and things like that so and that's i i've got so I did those those laminated sides. I did four of them, and two of them came out beautiful, and two of them came out not so good. Um, and I have a date with a heat gun and and some palette knives yeah. in my in my not so distant future to get those back apart because of course uh, the sides are all book matched, so I I, yeah. I don't have another piece that can fit the sequence, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, well, thankfully for this stuff, it was just some, uh, you know, just your everyday cheap, uh, cheap cherry, you know, from the scrap yeah. pile. But uh, yeah, things, things go, you think, oh, it works great. You do a dry run. Okay, perfect. As soon as you put glue on it, something is either now too tacky and it doesn't slide like it did before, or now it's like a, with epoxy, it's super slick. And, oh, yeah. and then all of a sudden nothing's holding together anymore. Not on the buck properly or the the bag my my least favorite thing is the bag will suck up underneath between the buck and the the piece and it's like wow you're gonna rip the bag and trying to yeah it's a mess that's yeah. uh that's what happened on mine is is the bag got in between the two laminations so there's a there's a gap in one spot on both oh, of them and yeah, it's no. and you can imagine right like you've got forms that are already bent going on to a buck that's already that's bent slightly differently because the pieces have sprung back and they all spring back slightly differently. So, so you, it's, it's a little bit like wrestling a grease pig, you know, you're, you're holding down one spot and looking at everything else and trying to pull the bag free. I think, uh, I think the average was probably pulling vacuum on the bag 10 times before I thought everything was in place. And I'm, I'm learning. I think, I think one of the things I'll do uh, again, you know, guitar building being the precision type of, of operation that it is, there are people who've come up with some great tricks for aligning fretboards to necks where a fretboard is tapered and the neck may not be cut yet. And when you glue it and clamp it, everything just wants to squirt around. Like there's no, no keeping that thing where you want it. But I've seen some guys that are actually dry fitting and they get the dry fit perfect with their clamps and everything else. And then they'll take hot glue and glue uh, pieces, you know, just little, little pieces as alignment uh, things. And so when you put the clamps on, it's going to want to squeeze into your alignment pins and, the more clamps you put on it, the tighter it gets and the more perfect it fits. And so I've got to come up with something along those lines for doing those laminated sides where you can put some guides along the form and be able to control, you know, if something were to squirt a little bit, it can only move this direction or that direction. So you're not, you, 
the the issue for me was I was trying to control three planes at the same time, X, Y, and Z. <clears throat> and you don't have enough hands for that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you turn the vacuum pump on, you sit there for 10 minutes waiting for the bag to evacuate. Nothing happens. Then all of a sudden within two seconds, you're like, shit, I missed it. Yeah. No, it it is. It's, it, it is humbling the first couple times that you do a, a vacuum setup and you know, what, what's the way you practice that, right? Just, just go ahead and Vaseline all your pieces up and throw them in the bag and turn it on. You know, that's, that's your dry run. That's, that's really the only way to simulate it without messing something up. But um, anyway, it, it should be, I'm trying to think through all those things because there are people who want to do those types of operations out there that really don't have time for the R and D. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier um, with, with making some of these electronic components and some of that stuff, my goal is, um, interestingly enough, if you're going to build your very, very first acoustic guitar, even electric guitar, you spend so much time making jigs and fixtures. You'll spend three quarters, maybe more of your time making jigs and fixtures to make everything go. And then you, you spend this very small amount of time building the guitar that you want to build. And what my hope is that I can put things out on the market that will allow people to get back that three quarters of their time and spend all of their time focusing on the guitar without having to spend a considerably larger amount of money on the tools and fixtures that it takes. And one of the things that I'll share here, Brian, is I'm developing a rental program for some of these tools. So um, to put it in perspective, an acoustic, somebody building their first acoustic guitar might spend $2,000 on tools. And when I say tools, I mean forms and fixtures and things of that nature that are specifically for guitar building, not saws and drills and, and things like that, but on forms and doodads. And my goal, because I think that's a barrier to entry. There's a lot of people who can't afford, you know, you're you're going to spend $1,000 in lumber and hardware, and then another $2,000 on top of that in tools and fixtures that you may never use again, because you may not like building a guitar. And so my goal is to have a little bit of a, some sort of a rental program where a young guitar builder, somebody who wants to get into it, but maybe not make the huge investment can rent for a month and build, you know, bend as many sides as they can bend in a month, you know, go through all your scraps, uh, get, get all the breaks out of your system, figure out how to do it and then be able to bend, you know, a couple, three or four or five, 10 guitars worth of sides and then be able to return the unit and, you know, not have to worry about the burden of that investment. But then if they want to turn around in two or three months and rent it again, and then, you know, a few times a year, uh, be able to track that and say on the fifth time that they rent it, it's theirs. And I think that's a unique model. So it allows somebody maybe to sell a few guitars and be able to to kind of pay as they go without having to make that huge investment up front. Nobody else out there is doing that. I, I may shoot myself in the foot here. I may have all my competition develop rental programs here in the next two months. Um, well, but we can always edit it out if you want. No, it, it, it's fine. It, it's on my website already. I have yeah. a rental section and I've said it's it's coming. And I've had a lot of really positive response to that. But the other thing that gives me freedom for is I can put out these first units that I've been working on without the fear of a warranty. So 
really understand, are they going to make it through the mail? And, you know, the worst, the worst that can happen in this instance is somebody sends the unit back and I refund their money. No big deal. But I think what's really going to happen is they're going to test it. And I'm going to get some good real world feedback from everybody and be able to improve uh, the products that we're putting out there, which is kind of the end goal to put out some yeah. really cool stuff. So are you talking about like renting the vacuum bag, the vacuum pump and the heat heating element along with all the forms? So it's like this big kit that comes. Yeah. And it'll probably be scalable. So um, say there's somebody who's quite capable of doing the form work uh, out of MDF, right? Anybody can do that. You've got a set of plans and whatever. So maybe I just need to rent the heating unit itself with the heating blanket and then the the press to to get the the curves in there, but then they're going to make their own guitar form. Cool. We can rent just that piece. If there's somebody who says, no, I want the whole thing to be able to bend aside. I want a, a turnkey unit to be able to bend sides. Great. Then I want the turnkey unit to bend size, but then I also want a vacuum form. We'll probably have some options for that as well. I don't know if I'll be sending a vacuum pump back and forth uh, through UPS and specifically because of the size and the weight of those. I think at some point you get a diminishing return there. There's some there's some folks out there who make some DIY vacuum kits. I've got one that works on the Venturi effect that mm -hmm. was fairly inexpensive. I want to say it was maybe 150, 200 bucks uh, to build my own. So I'll, I'll probably let the pump go, but but be able to do all the forms and things of that nature. So you'll have the buck, the vacuum buck, and then the outside forms that somebody could rent and and be able to send back. Um, and then again, with the, with the notion that if they want to rent it five times, or I, I don't know what the magic number is going to be, but I'm throwing five times out there that, it, that it'll just be theirs. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people out there willing to, to take that kind of risk on some young builders, but uh, I want more people to be able to experience guitar building. And so if I can, if I can lower the height of that hurdle, that's what, that's what my intention is to do. Yeah, for sure. I know this guitar building or building a guitar has always been something that I've thought in the back of my head that'd be cool or some kind of stringed instrument a violin or or something but like the complexity of it all uh is kind of intimidating to get started especially right. since i don't play the guitar i'm i'm a saxophone player not a guitar player so it'd be really hard for me to like to put all this time into this thing that i wouldn't be able to enjoy i'd just be like okay i built it like what do i what do i do with it now <laughs> I'll come over and play it anytime, Brian. Right. You just cool. tell me when you get one done. Um, it is, it, it, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's a rite of passage, but there are a lot of people, uh, Matt Cremona in April, I think went over to, uh, to Ben Crow's place there in, in the UK and built guitars with him, I think. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That was, that's a long time ago. It was, uh, yeah. I, I got, wonder if Matt even plays. I don't think he does. I, I, I think I talked to him about it. Um, I was excited that he was doing it because I think it, you know, a, a well-known woodworker like that going over and and experiencing a guitar build and kind of documenting that I think opened some people's eyes to the fact that yes, mortals can, can build, build guitars. Guitar. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. Well, uh, so let's see. Um, have you got anything beyond the bed project uh, on the drawing boards? Are you in the beginning stages of thinking through some design ideas? I, I do. Um, one is this slab that's behind me, this little 
crotch of the tree stump trunk is the bottom of the uh the bottom of the tree i think something along those lines but um that'll be a a coffee table but i wanted to uh, do some kind of sculptural base on it so i have that kind of kicking around in the back of my head i i have it in my head looking good but then when i drew it it looks terrible so <laughs> i don't I, that's that's why it's still sitting there it's hard to pull the trigger on it and then uh i want to do another bench with a stone uh yeah. through it uh that that um original youtube video the original one that the views have really died off on that so i'm not getting anybody yelling at me i should have just cut the top of the stone off so i need to re i need to revitalize <laughs> the trolls and uh i want to do kind of more of a uh a more modern mo more modern one that i can sell uh the original one has this big arch and then it has these supports that i uh, did through tenons through these arch so it's a curved it's a curved mortise and uh, it was that was really very time consuming to do so and also it's kind of fragile the way it's the way it's built so that has to be sold as more of an art piece I want something that can take a little bit more of a beating that I would be comfortable to ship across the uh, the country after I build it kind of a thing and sell it to somebody so Very those cool. two things, and then I have a I have a handful of ideas that I don't want to necessarily put out there yet because they're still they're still in the in the hopper and the in the way YouTube works. Uh, you say one thing, and then ten guys beat you to it because that's their their gig is making YouTube videos. Of course, yep, yep. The next river table, what's it going to be? Yeah, who's gonna? What are you gonna Im embed into your epoxy next? Some Fruit Loops and Legos and whatever whatever they got going on these days. Crayons. Someone did a crayon. Set it a river of epoxy. Did a river of crayon. I don't know who that was, but I was yeah. like, all right, whatever. Yeah, I've seen the colored pencils. Uh, I don't know if I saw the crayons, but yeah, I've seen a number of things out there buried under epoxy, which yeah. is fine. Uh, well, the crayons was seeing. even buried into epoxy. It was just poured in the crack. So I don't oh. think it's very durable of a oh. of a table. But if you uh, want to color your floor, you can just flip your coffee table over and rub, well, rub it around. Or you could just set a piece of paper on top of it and just do a rubbing. And oh yeah, have, that'd uh, be cool. See that? Oh, See, I shouldn't be making fun of it because now there's all kinds of cool things you could do with it. Yeah, that'd be a good exercise for the kiddos, I suppose. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't know that I've mentioned it on our podcast, Brian, but, uh, I'm restoring an old Porsche 356 as well. That one's kind of waiting in the wings. Poor guy keeps looking at me wondering when I'm going to get back to it. I haven't touched it since, uh, I want to say it was November, maybe late November sometime. Maybe, maybe it was the first week of December. Um, and we got into our end of year crunch in terms of production and keeping things in stock for the Christmas season. Uh, on the tool side of things. And I had what seemed like an endless list of, and it's still going actually. Uh, hey, I need more of these. I need more of these. My wife really cracks the whip when we go out of stock on things. Um, <clears throat> so I had a number of things to tend to. And with all the travel that we do over the holidays and that sort of thing, didn't have time to even look at the car. And then when we got back, starting to produce all these prototypes that I've been talking about. But my hope is, again, we've got a 
deadline in late March. My hope is that I can have all of my prototypes done and we can be into the production phase, which will be handled not by me, but by somebody else um, and be able to maybe turn back toward the car and give it a little bit of love. But I'm, I'm really excited about getting that thing moving forward. Yeah. Are you still going to be documenting it on your YouTube channel? I am. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure. I started thinking about, you know, I've, I've been documenting it in some, what I would call gory detail level of things. And I think I'm going to back off of that a little bit. Um, there are some people out there that like that, but I've really gotten through what I would call the driver's side. So new rocker panels and uh, longitudinals and, and all of those kind of pieces. Um, I can't remember what you call the, the mud guard area of the fender, but, but that piece is in as well. Uh, and I got to do the passenger side and the passenger side is basically going to be a repeat of the driver's side. There's, there's nothing, there's no new material there other than it's all reverse. <laughs> and yeah. So uh, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to spend the time to document that simply because uh, if I move the cameras out of the way, I can probably move at three to four times the speed. And so if I can get the passenger side knocked out and then move on to the front fenders and, and hood and all that, the nose that has to be replaced, uh, I think I can get there a lot quicker without the cameras in my way. And people will, I, I think my audience will enjoy seeing that more than they'll enjoy seeing a repeat of the left, uh, of the left side. Yeah. Especially right. since it's the, the same, same thing. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, um, I, I will continue to document it for sure. I, I think I'm going to back out a little bit in terms of the level of detail that I'm covering, but you know, when I run into something interesting, I'll show it. And, uh, when I need to, to back off and, and make some progress. I'll, I'll do that as well. That some of that work gets extraordinarily tedious, I'll say, and can be very frustrating because, you know, it's a almost 60 year old car. No, 60 years old this year. Yeah. 1964. Yeah. So uh, it's a 60 year old car that's been banged up a little bit. So things aren't going to fit right out of the box. And there's a, anyway, it can get really frustrating and having a camera in your way. <laughs> can sometimes prevent you from from making the progress that you have have to make so um just just not having that distraction i think will be good sometimes yeah the last couple of projects i built i i didn't film the last thing i filmed i think was a cribbage board thing yep. and that was specifically for youtube because i wanted to sell plans and add to my uh as you call them atm machines i wanted to add a new a new downloadable plan to my atm machine the last couple, I was just like, I just need to get, you know, the winter time is the hardest time to make money <clears throat> selling home goods because people don't want to tear up their house during Christmas and things. So it's a matter of just like, all right, I got the project. I need to get it done, get paid and get that money in the bank. And uh, I just set the camera aside and just went after it. That's smart. Yeah. I think sometimes we have to do that. And, you know, I don't, I don't rely on my YouTube income. I'll just say it that way. You know, yeah. the, the YouTube income is is what I affectionately refer to as the mama don't know money. <laughs> if I want to buy something stupid or, or whatever, um, you know, it, it used to pay my car payment every month. That's what, that's what I'll say there. Uh, it doesn't do that anymore. Cause I don't put that volume of videos out there. So that, yeah. at the, at the end of the day, um, really the reason I document my car builds on YouTube is for other people that are doing the same type of project so that they can have a little uh, 
they can understand what goes into it because there's no books out there that tell you how those things go together. I think people have some weird belief that they can find pictures of a, of a dissected car and those things don't exist from the factory for certain. Uh, so it's guys like me out there documenting how these things come apart and go back together that, that are the source of inspiration for some people. And I, I like being that guy. I think it's, it's fun to explore and, and get into some things that you don't understand, but then it's also fun to share those things with other people and maybe help a car that's been stuck in a, somebody's garage for 30 years because they got stuck on a problem that they couldn't solve, you know, helping them solve that problem. I, I can't tell you on the Carmen Ghia side, how many emails I've received over the years from people who were absolutely like car had been sitting for over a decade because they got to a certain point and couldn't get it back together. They couldn't, they couldn't figure out a, a point to start from and measure and uh, something in my video tipped them off to how they could get that done. And then, nice. you know, I've gotten, I've gotten several people who've sent me pictures of their finished car and Hey, this is because of the videos you put out on YouTube 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's some satisfaction there. And, and the satisfaction isn't that I taught somebody the satisfaction for me is that there's another car back on the road. That's a cool car that people get to drive and experience and look at and understand the the history of that vehicle. So. Yeah. It's also like just preserving history. I can't imagine like my grandkids are going to be like, Hey, we got to put this Honda back together, like restore this Honda. Like there's, there's nothing that's worth restoring that that's happened in the last 20 years. Right. Like I, at least I feel that way. Like everything is just so just designed. So to, to maximize profit, not beauty. Yeah. I think there are still some some cars out there that are worthy of being restored. I mean, I'm looking at it now. So uh, I was thinking about this this morning, and this it blows my mind. Um, when I bought my Carmen Ghia, I bought my Carmen Ghia in 1992 when I graduated from high school. And it was a 1974 Carmen Ghia. So that car was 18 years old when I bought it. And when I bought it, it was like a long gone classic, completely rusted out, just complete shit bomb. That car was awful. <laughs> Should have gone to the junkyard. <laughs> Let's be honest. And somebody had already restored it. So in 18 years of life, this car had been driven and wrecked. The motor had been rebuilt twice, I believe. And it had been restored and then sat in somebody's garage. And then when I bought it, it was in need of another restoration. Like that, <laughs> that is a car that just wanted to die. And I bought it at 18 years old. Now in 2024, I look at an 18 year old car is a 2006. That doesn't seem like a classic car to me. Yeah, not and, at all. And I look at, you know, what are those cars that are going to be candidates? Maybe the the early, early 2000s, the late 1990s. And I look at cars like the Audi TT that's out there. Uh, some of the little, uh, I don't know if they call them roadsters, but there were some special edition TTs that are pretty darn cool cars that I wouldn't mind getting my hands on one that that needed to be restored. I think they were pretty innovative for their time. I think you're going to see people that'll restore the modern Beatles too. I, of course, I'm German car guy, but yeah, uh, I think there there are definitely some some of those. And then the tail end of the air cooled Porsche era 
1996, I believe. So that was the last of the air cooled, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And those cars are starting to get restored now too. So yeah. there there are some gems out there, and there's culture. there's some American cars for sure that fall into that category. And there are some uh, some other cars. Uh, you see a lot in the tuner world, a lot of the guys uh, doing the Subaru thing, which I find fascinating that people that people enjoy that, or not enjoy that, but they really get into it. And I would not have thought of the Subaru as that platform, but they had a lot of really cool uh, motor platforms that the, the WRX and the turbos that they have in some of those Subarus are pretty impressive <laughs> little engines that fit in those cars. I can understand why people tune them, but I, it, it surprises me that people pick the brand of Subaru to hot rod. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, uh, all on these lines of, uh, of car culture, um, I got a little story that I think you would appreciate, uh, cause of the German VW bug situation. So <clears throat> years and years ago, I, uh, worked at a flooring company selling, selling flooring, right? And so um, these dudes roll up in this old Volkswagen bus, like like total surfer vibe, stoner vibe from these guys, right? They come in and they're like, hey, man, we want some shag carpet for our van. And I was like, all right, cool. How big of a piece do you need? And he's like, oh, I don't know, man. Can you come out and measure it? And I was like, sure. So we go out there. And uh, they open up the open up the doors, and uh, just this big billow of green smoke just billows up out of this out of this thing. And this dude's sitting there, and he's like, "What's up, man?" And he's just smoking uh, smoking a blunt. And uh, so I crawl in there and I measure it. And the rest of the day, I was just like, because from the contact high. And uh, we go in, we figure it all out. I show him some red shag carpet, like like we like the new term frisé, but it was the tallest frisé I could could find uh, for these guys. And of course, their credit card was declined. And he's like, "Dude, I thought we had some money." And he's like, "No, nah, man, we pulled all the money out of the ATM to buy the weed." It was just like this classic, <laughs> classic stoner stoner thing. But uh, yeah, I'll never forget those guys. That was that was a fun afternoon. Trying to They're, sell them carpet for their van. The, the the hippie Volkswagen culture is a real thing. I've I've been around Volkswagens. I I feel like my whole life. Uh, one of my aunts owned one when I was a little kid. She had a Beetle, uh, and you know I I sort of fell in love with the brand. Gosh, in grade school, and uh, when I was able to buy one, you know, my senior year of high school, you know, it's like I I I thought I'd just died and gone to heaven. But uh, started hanging around Volkswagen car shows and things like that. And I always say when I when I show up at a VW show, it's like I'm finally with my people again. <laughs> and, and it's not that everybody's smoking weed and whatever else, but but there's a certain there's a certain mentality in the hippie culture that's that's like a an easygoing, free riding, you know, like take it easy. Like this is this is a totally chilled out thing. And you know, you go to uh, I, I want to say I still like muscle cars. I like every kind of car. I'm 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 sort of agnostic that way, but I have my favorites. Uh, but when you show up to a muscle car event, there's a lot of adrenaline there. There's a lot of uh, 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 machismo. That's <laughs> a good word. And you know, guys that are just really into their cars. And uh, it, it's sort of like you know Harley Davidson guys. You know, they are really into their bikes, and that's cool. I love that. But 
but it's not laid back enough for me. <laughs> when you when you go to a Volkswagen show, there's generally a lot of cars in that show that have towels for seat covers and and things of that nature. It's it's not about the the spit shine and polish and perfection. It's more about the the culture and the vibe of the car. And I really, really dig that. Yeah, has a lived-in feel. Uh, one of my friends, Tony, he uh, used to be a, a deadhead, so he'd follow the Grateful Dead around, um, and he had a little uh, a little VW bus that he uh, just just uh, tooled around and went from Grateful Dead show to Grateful Dead show, and he basically he was basically homeless. He lived in his van yeah. and just went from from town to town following yeah. the Grateful Dead. I, I was never able to do that. I was always gainfully employed from about 12 years on, <laughs> 12 yeah. years old on. Uh, so I was never able to to go, you know, be a deadhead or a fishhead or or Dave Matthews guy or, you know, whoever tooling around the country. But I keep thinking, you know, at some point when I retire, I might get the uh, urban assault rig <laughs> of, yeah. of some some kind, the, the Mercedes Sprinter van and maybe follow a couple bands around for a month or two and, and just experience uh, not having to, to go to work and worry about things, but we'll see. We'll see yeah. if that pans out for van me. life. If right now van life's a big deal on YouTube, oh, all it kinds is. of channels, people uh, doing their vans. It is. And, and I can appreciate that. I think that's such a cool thing, you know, as an architect and a car guy, those two things kind of melding together in your home, becoming your vehicle or your vehicle becoming your home. Uh, there's there's something to that that I that I think speaks to us, especially as as Americans. Our cars are very important to us. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, I think there's there's some really interesting connection there with the van life. Yeah, well, I told my wife if I uh, if she leaves me or passes away, I'm selling this house, and uh, I'm gonna buy a van to live in, but also buy a property with a just a big tilt up building for my shop, and so I'll have this little tiny van that I live in, and then everything else will be dedicated to making things. I need to send you a link. Um, there's a guy that I would, so he is a custom ski manufacturer. Okay. Right. And he will host anyone who wants to make their own custom skis. And he started in mammoth California and was, had a shop there, you know, brick and mortar type situation and decided that that wasn't for him, that he wanted to take his show on the road and be able to go wherever he wanted to go and be at the, be in a ski town in the winter, but then be somewhere else cool in the summer. And so he got a trailer frame of some kind and built a shop, a ski production shop on top of this trailer, along nice. with a place to live. So he, his wife is a chef. And so he and his wife lived together uh, doing this mobile ski manufacturing operation, and they host people who want to build skis and do ski class. And I am dying to go build a set of skis with this guy. I will do it before uh, before I die. Uh, if he's still in operation, I really would like to do it in the next few years because, you know, people like that aren't around forever in terms right. of their their situations change and their their thoughts and ideas change. But uh, I just find that fascinating, but I'll have to send you a link to his website. Uh, 
I've I've emailed back and forth with him a few times and just haven't found the opportunity to go to go do that with him. But again, it's like it's like taking that van life to the next level. Yeah. He's got his van and his workshop. I think that would be just the most awesome situation. Yeah. So how uh, how long does it take to build a set of skis? I think it's four days, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, see, that's a vacation. You should just take a vacation and go do that. I I should. You're right. Uh, and and yeah, I, I work hard enough. I should treat myself <laughs> to go do that. I just haven't found the hole in my schedule. The planets yeah. haven't aligned yet, but I right. will make them aligned. Um, you know, they're also on that list of people. I want to build guitars with a few different builders as well. Uh, you know, guys that offer workshops and things like that, just go build a, a guitar and see, see how they would do it. Cause it's definitely going to be different than I would do it and, and things like that. But I've got a few of those things on my list. I need to start checking them off. Yeah. Uh, and if he's mobile, you can invite him out here to Colorado. We have some great skiing. I, I have made that suggestion. I'm not sure he wants to make that trip. He, I yeah. think he stays more around Tahoe and California, that whatever, that Bermuda Triangle, Down there, there yeah. Mammoth and, and Tahoe. And there's, there's one other one out there. Can't remember what it is. Uh, Big Bear. There we go. Big yeah. Bear. Well, uh, Brian, we've been on here for a little bit over an hour, uh, kind of jabbing about what our jabbering about what our projects are that we've got going in the shop. And this was really kind of a, a cool thing that we've, we, we haven't ever sat and talked about the projects we've had going on before. So kind of a cool catch up. I hope everybody out there uh, listening in, in uh, the worldwide land got something out of it and found this entertaining. But uh, for now, I am Greg Porter. You can find me on skyscraperguitars.com and gregsgaragekc.com along with Greg's Garage Instagram and YouTube and Skyscraper Guitars Instagram and YouTube. And I'm Brian Benham. You can find me at Benham Design just about everywhere on all of those social platforms. And you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. And if you need a clickable link to any of Greg's or my stuff, uh, go to themakersquest.com and we'll have links to all our stuff there. Thanks for listening.